The Foreign Secretary of India is the top diplomat of the world's largest democracy. And our guest today, Shiv Shankar Menon, held that post from 2006 to 2009, then becoming National Security Advisor to Congress Party Prime Minister Manmohan Singh until 2014. Those hugely important roles capped off a long and distinguished career of public service that included stints as India's ambassador to China and Israel and as High Commissioner to Sri Lanka and Pakistan. They also continued a long family history of diplomacy. Shivshanka's father and uncle were both ambassadors. His grandfather was India's first foreign secretary and his great-grandfather was president of the Indian National Congress. Shivshanka Menon is now a Distinguished Fellow at the Centre for Social and Economic Progress in Delhi and the Lowy Institute's Distinguished International Fellow. And on Monday, he delivered the annual Owen Harry's Lecture on India's role in Asia's changing geopolitics. Shivshanka Menon, welcome to The Year That Made Me. Thank you for having me. It's good of you to ask me. Diplomacy mm -hmm. certainly does seem to be the family trade, Shivshanka. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about your family and your early years? I grew up as a diplomat's son and grew up in, in Lhasa, in Tibet, in Damascus, in places there wasn't much schooling. So I was really homeschooled until I was 10, sent off to boarding school. I never intended to be a diplomat myself, quite frankly. I wanted Yes, I was to going to ask you whether it was a choice or an expectation. Uh, <laughs> in fact, my, my father used to dissuade me. He said, no, follow what you're interested in. And I had started actually doing a PhD on ancient India and ancient China, both of which were unified within 100 years of each other, 221 BC and 326 BC. So that's what I was doing. I'd learned classical Chinese, Sanskrit, ancient history, and but I wanted to see China. And in those days, the only way to see China for an Indian at the end of the Cultural Revolution, late 60s, was either to become a Maoist guerrilla or to join the diplomatic service and be posted to the embassy. <laughs> so I chose the easy route. And I imagine that I, was easier in the family as well. <laughs> I was lucky. I passed the exam. So I went to China in the expectation that I'd see China and then go back to my PhD, but I never did because I, I just enjoyed being in China and was, was so fascinated by what happened. I was there on my first posting from 74 to 77, but I think what really made it for me was 1976. Yes, and that's the year, year you've chosen as mm -hmm. the year that made you. Uh, tell us a little bit about that time. I suppose two aspects of it. Firstly, being a young Indian diplomat in China at that time, but then also the events that were going on, and particularly in 1976 and how that affected both you and then, of course, China and India. Well, for me personally, it was, you know, as we entered 76, my daughter had just been born 10 days before that, my, our first child, in Peking, in a bitterly cold winter, minus 20 degrees it was, I remember. And <laughs> then the year, you know, got politically so charged, and my job in the embassy was reporting on Chinese internal politics. Cho Lai died in January. In April, there were commemorations for Cho, spontaneous popular commemorations, where there was implicit criticism of Mao and uh, Deng Fell, Mao nominated as successor. In July, there was a huge earthquake in Tangshan, 
150 kilometers from Beijing, where over 450,000 people died, and continuous aftershocks. In fact, many people were evacuated from Beijing. We had to live in a tent in the embassy grounds, those of us who mm. stayed behind to run the embassy for the next few months. And in September, Mao Zedong died. And then there was, of course, a coup by the older leaders left behind by Deng Xiaoping, his supporters in the army, against the Gang of Four, Mao's own wife and the Cultural Revolution radicals. And China started changing course. So it was a year when, for somebody whose job was reporting on China's internal politics, there was just so much to do that I actually fell in love with the job. What was supposed to be a job didn't seem very like much of a job. It, it really seemed just like pleasure because Chinese politics was a puzzle. You knew very little of what was going on. This was, don't forget, China at the end of the Cultural Revolution, very secretive, very closed. And so you were trying to piece together these puzzles with your friends in the diplomatic corps. And it was it was quite an experience. And I think that's what really hooked me to the job. And I spent 42 years actually working for government after that and never managed to get back to the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> well, but engaged with the issues nevertheless, because as you said, you were looking at the history and the unifications of ancient India and ancient China. And of course, India and China share a border that's 3,000 kilometers long and has been the site of conflicts of varying degrees of intensity over the years, armed conflict in 1962. And then, of course, there were those what are described as skirmishes, but there were certainly multiple fatalities in 2020. Mm -hmm. And uh, Shivshankar Benon, you were involved in the negotiations that led to the very diplomatically titled 1993 Agreement on the Maintenance of Peace and Tranquility along the line of actual control in the India-China border areas. Mm -hmm. The first border agreement between India and China. Could you tell us about the significance of that and then also your assessment of the state of border relations and relations more broadly between India and China today. Well, you know, those relations, India-China relations have had their ups and downs. As you said, there was a border conflict in 1962 and after that we worked from the 70s onwards. In the early 80s we started talks on the boundary question and we worked to try and develop a modus vivendi between us. By the end of the 80s, by 1988, Rajiv Gandhi visited China as Prime Minister of India. And we came to an understanding of that with the Chinese, that we would handle our differences through peaceful negotiations. We wouldn't disturb the status quo. And we wouldn't let our differences, like the boundary, prevent us from working together where we could, whether it's trade or travel and other things. And that modus vivendi actually not just kept the peace on the border, but allowed the relationship to grow for the next almost three decades. And the 1993 agreement that we signed, that we negotiated and signed, really constituted a legally binding commitment by both sides to respect the status quo. And where they had different ideas of where the line might be, they agreed to clarify it through a process of discussion. And it kept the peace. From about 2013 onwards, however, we've had a series of escalating border incidents. And in 2020 spring, when the Chinese PLA tried to move forward in several areas along the line. 
there was obviously resistance by Indian troops, and we had the first deaths on the border by hostile action in 45 years. Since then, we've been trying to disengage the troops, but they are still up there along the line in very hostile terrain and, and really hard climate minus, you know, this is over 18,000 feet above sea level, and they've been there three winters. So there is a bit of an impasse on the border. On the year that made me, we are speaking with Shivshankar Menon, who is the Lowy Institute's Distinguished International Fellow at the moment. And Shivshankar, it's interesting hearing you speak about that long-term process of peace building. And of course, you were also India's Foreign Secretary when the November 2008 Mumbai terror attacks occurred, the National Security Advisor in the years after. And you were also India's Ambassador to Israel. In that context, I wonder if you could share your thoughts on the ramifications of the huge terror attack and the hostage taking by Hamas that we've seen. And I suppose also the challenges of diplomacy and restoration of normalisation and even the idea of peace building in the wake of such a horrific event as we've seen. Yes, we were shocked, all of us, by the terrorist attack. And as Prime Minister Modi said immediately, that India stands in solidarity with Israel. I think that it was quite shocking, A, because I don't think anyone expected it, despite some of the best intelligence organizations in the world. Also, I think, because it does run contrary to the entire trend of political developments in, in the Middle East in the recent past, where, yeah. thanks to the Abraham Accords, several states had recognized Israel, that they were normalizing. There were talks going on about Saudi Arabia also normalizing relations with Israel. And the U.S. was brokering them. And uh, I presume that these attacks were designed to actually stop that momentum. What effect they'll have is much harder to say, because while the immediate reaction might be to unite all Israelis, I think, and much of the world behind Israel in the face of this kind of terrorism, it is also true that this reflects, I think, the Palestinian sense of, of desperation and of neglect of being left out of political processes. Terrorism is one thing that we should be united about. But the politics of it is something that we need to handle much, much better than we have handled. We shouldn't be in a place where peace is so fragile that it can be at the mercy of, of terrorist groups. We used to say every crisis is also an opportunity to do things that we find difficult in normal times, but that maybe crisis enables us to do the right thing. Shivshankar Menon, you wrote in Foreign Policy last year that a kind of anarchy is creeping into international relations in the sense of lacking a central organising principle or hegemon. Could you explain your perspective on that a little bit for us and give us your thoughts on what it means for India and maybe also Australia? Well, the international system is anarchic in, in a very limited sense. There's no hegemon. There's... There is no enforcement mechanism for international law or the rules that states might agree among themselves. International law, unlike domestic law, where we have structures in place to actually enforce them and enforce our laws, our constitutions, and to make sure that society stays peaceful, 
So to that extent, international society is anarchic. But what's happened in the last few years, I think, is that most of the major powers today are revisionist. I mean, when someone in America says, make America great again, they're signaling unhappiness <laughs> with the present situation. And yet, this is an order that was primarily created by the West, led by America. So, across the board, you see countries maneuvering, trying to improve their own position in the order and to try and change the order in their own favor as they see it. And to that extent, yes, there is much more uncertainty about whether there is an international order at all or not. Frankly, if you look at the way international society has responded to transnational crises, to the COVID epidemic, for instance, the pandemic, you know, it was each country for themselves. There was a form of vaccine nationalism. There wasn't a coherent international response whether it's climate change, whether it's developing country debt, it's hard to point to a coherent international response which deals with these transnational issues. So for me, this is a world between orders, a world that is adrift, as it were. And we're not quite sure where we are heading. And this is why I think there's so much political confusion around us when you look at the world. Another theme of your writing, Shivshanka, has been how different many global issues, particularly the war in Ukraine, look to non-Western powers. And I assume Australia shares that Western perspective. I wonder if you could give us an example of an issue that might be pertinent to Australia where it would be diplomatically sensible for Australia to be wary of not being caught in that sort of purely Western lens. Well, far be it from me to tell Australia what to do. Oh, but we've invited you here to do that, Shivshanka. Go on, please. (laughs) That's not my place. No, all I'm saying is that the world looks quite different depending on where you are. And today what's happened is, I think, for many developing countries, they don't feel that the international system or community is doing very much for their real issues. I mentioned debt. The IMF says that over 53 developing countries are at grave risk of facing a debt crisis of one kind or another. That's a huge number. But the world, frankly, hasn't managed to do anything about it, despite talking about it in several meetings of multilateral fora of the G20 and so on. Climate change is is an existential threat to several small island countries, island developing countries and is already having devastating effects in some countries. Pakistan last year, one-third of its surface area was flooded, and uh, one-fifth of its population was displaced. These are huge numbers. And as I said, at a time when the international community or system is not responding, they look for other answers. So for me, the important thing is that All of us, no matter whether we're developed, advanced, like Australia or like India or the larger emerging economies, that we be conscious of this because ultimately we are today in one world. It's one globalized world economy. And these kinds of issues, pandemics, climate change, etc., terrorism, 
They don't recognize national borders. They don't have national solutions. They need transnational solutions with all of us working together. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has obviously become a towering figure on the international stage and not just at the G20 recently. He's also engaged a huge Indian diaspora and is very popular at home, but at the same time is accused of trying to silence his critics, especially journalists and some scholars. Shivshankar, do you think there's a tension between recognition of India's right to assert a status internationally more befitting of its global significance and concerns about the more aggressive form of Hindu nationalism that the Modi government represents? I think there's two separate issues here in, in your question. One is what kind of India we want to build. I think everybody agrees that we want to transform India into a modern, secure, prosperous country where every Indian can achieve their potential. But what kind of India that's going to be, that's an internal political discussion which Indians will settle. Because as things evolve and change, and India today is very different from the way it was before, there will be new ideas and new ways of, of developing India. The other question is what we should be seeking abroad. My own sense is that the goal of Indian foreign and security policy is actually to enable the transformation of India. It's not status, it's not glory, it's not controlling the narrative, it's not revenge for history. So for me, those are the standards. I would judge what India does by the outcomes and by its effect on India's own transformation. I know people like to present themselves as being driven by their values, but in an anarchic international society, the fact is that it's states' interests which drive their behavior. And that's what I think we're seeing now. Shivshankar Menon, it's been great speaking with you for the year that made me. Thanks so much for speaking with us. And I wonder if you could do the traditional thing at the end of the year that made me by nominating a song for us to finish with and perhaps telling us why you've chosen it. Well, I'd choose John Lennon's Imagine, partly because it was a song of hope at a very difficult time. And I think we're in another very difficult time. But it did offer an alternate vision of what the world could be like. I know it's controversial, especially for speaking of a world without religion, but that's the song that I would choose. It's an anthem that I think is worth listening to. Shiv Shankar Menon, thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you very much.
ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.